Well, good evening. It's a privilege to be with you and to be able to uh, look at the Word of God together this evening. If you have your Bibles with you, if you'd like to turn back to those verses that were read to us earlier, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and t- uh, to 20, verses 15 to 20, we're going to look there in a moment. But just before we do, um, I will just pray again and ask the Lord for his uh, help. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that great is your faithfulness. We thank you that that we can uh, gather boldly before the throne of grace this evening and find help in time of need. And we can do so because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would just... uh, Help us in this time, Father, as, as we look at your word, that you will give us understanding. Father, I pray for myself. I pray you will give me the words to say, that you will help me, that you will speak through me. And Father, for those of us who are listening, Father, help us to listen well. We think of that hymn which we sung earlier, Arise my soul and look to Christ. We, we pray, Lord, that you will help our souls, as it were, to arise this evening and to behold our Savior as he is proclaimed from your holy word. Father, give us understanding. We, we think of the Greeks, as they said to Philip, we would see Jesus. Father, that's our desire, that you will show us the glory of our Savior as we have him described in your word. We, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at those verses this evening, um, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, here we, we have a wonderful description of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is probably um, one of the greatest descriptions we, we, we find of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, probably comparable maybe to Revelation chapter 1 where you have a description of him in, in his risen glory. But Paul is, is, is writing this letter, I don't know if, if you know this, but Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae while he was in prison. Maybe you didn't know that. You read through the letter and he's not moaning about being in prison, is he? He's, he, he begins by, by exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in prison. He's likely been visited by Epaphras, who was a leader in the church there at Colossae. Epaphras would have brought news about the church to the Apostle Paul. He would have had lots of good things to say, and we see that in the letter. But he also had some concerns, and we see the concerns as, as, as we read through the letter. There were consul- concerns about false teaching. There were false teachers who were bringing in uh, things which weren't true. And as you read through the letter of Colossians, the, the Apostle Paul touches on them and he, 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 he uh, refutes them. He tells them the truth. But before he does that, before he gets to the problems, we see that he begins the letter by exalting Jesus Christ. Before he deals with the issues, first he, he tells them the truth and he gets their gaze fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to have a proper and correct view of who Jesus is. And he sees that that that's important. That's paramount. In order for them to get these other issues right, which he touches upon later, they need to get this first issue right. Who is Jesus Christ? And that's what he sets about to establish in the the very first um, opening lines of this letter, if you like. He, He knew that they needed to have a proper view of Jesus in order to have a proper view of anything. And now there's a hymn written by John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. He also wrote another hymn, and I don't know if I've ever heard this uh, sung as often. I don't think I've ever heard it sung. But, this is, but John Newton knew the importance of 
a right view of Jesus. And this is, what, this is what he says in the hymn. It's in Old English, but I'm sure we can understand it. He says, what think ye of Christ? What do you think of Christ? What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. John Newton knows the same truth that Paul knows in, in, in this letter, that a right view of Jesus is essential to have a right view of anything. And so before Paul gets to the other matters, first he sets the priority, his priority is right, and he exalts Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in the verses we've just read, verse 15 to 20. Now, this section, verses 15 to 20, is thought by many to be a hymn, an early Christian hymn, like what we've been singing. And, 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 and they, they say that because of how poetic it is when, when, when you look at the way it's structured. Now, whether Paul wrote the hymn or whether he used it, we, we can't be certain, but we do know it's included because God wanted it there. This is his word. And he, um, in, he, he made sure Paul included it under, under the inspiration of his spirit. And so whether Paul wrote it or whether he used it, we don't know, but God wanted it there. And this hymn, if you like, splits into two sections. We see first, verse 15 to 17, that Jesus is Lord of creation. And we see in verses 18 to 20 that Jesus is Lord of salvation. Before I came earlier, I just had a quick look at Matthew Henry again, just to get some more wisdom from him. And he, he, he split it up by saying, we see in verses 15 to 17, that Jesus is God. And then we see in verse 18 to 20, that he is the mediator. So whichever way you want to look at it this evening, we see that he's Lord of creation, and he is also Lord of salvation. And, and that's how we're going to look at this, this hymn. And here we have several truths of who Jesus Christ is. Firstly, then, we, we, we have that Jesus is Lord of creation. And here we find three truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first truth is there in verse 15, and it's that Jesus Christ is the image of God. Just look down at verse 15 again. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul here is reminding the church at Colossae that Jesus is the visible expression, if you like, of the invisible God. Jesus, in Mark 12, 16, used the same word that Paul has used here for image. The same Greek word, I should say. We've got an English translation. This was originally written in Greek. If you didn't know that, now you do. But Paul said in, in Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, he said when he was being tested by the Pharisees, they wanted to know if they should pay taxes to Caesar. They wanted to try and trap Jesus in his words. And, and Jesus said this. He said, bring me a coin. And they brought Jesus a coin. And Jesus took the coin and he said to them, whose uh, likeness and inscription is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. Now that word likeness that Jesus used there is the same word that, that Paul is using here, which we translate image. And so what, what Paul is saying is just as when you look at a coin and you see the image of Caesar, he's saying when you look at Jesus Christ, you see God. You look at a coin, you see Caesar. You look at Jesus, you see God. That's what Paul is saying here, the image of God. You can look at your, your 10-pound note, and you see a picture of the queen. You see what the queen is like. You look at Jesus, and you see what God is like, the image of the invisible God. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ has all the attributes 
that God has. He perfectly displays to us what God is like. And that's why Jesus could say things like this. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Hebrews 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. And this, of course, shows us that Jesus is God. The reason that, that, he, that, that, that he is a God manifest in the flesh, if you like, or the, or the reason that he perfectly displays what God is like is because he himself is God. God who became a man. And now the obvious application of this truth is if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read about Jesus in the Gospels. He perfectly reveals to us who God is. And the reason is because he is God manifest in the flesh. And for this reason, the Colossian church didn't need to look anywhere else in order to know God. We see later on that Paul speaks about uh, vain philosophy and, and other things that they were trying to get to know God by, other means. And Paul is saying, if you want to know God, all you need is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He perfectly reveals to us what God is like. And for that reason, you don't need to look anywhere else. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. This is what Paul is saying here. Jesus is enough for us in order to know Almighty God. Know Him and you know God. And so the first truth Paul gives is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now the second truth is also found in verse 15. Look with me again at verse 15. It says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Now, here Paul is reminding the church at Colossae that Jesus has lordship over everything that's being created. He owns it all. Now, the word firstborn needs to be explained. This verse throughout history has been used by false teachers in order to say that Jesus is a created being. You have people doing it today. They're called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will knock on your door, if, and if they find out you're a Christian, they'll probably take you to this verse. And they'll say, look, it says there that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Therefore, he can't be God, because it's saying that he's a created being. Now, maybe you've, you've just heard that, and you're starting to worry a little bit. What, is that true? Well, it isn't true. That's not how the word's being used in this verse. The word firstborn, in, in Hebrew culture, the firstborn was the, was the son who had the the, the first in rank of the household, if you like. He was the one who was going to inherit everything. He was the one who was first. He would get the inheritance. He was first in rank. And, and we see throughout the Bible that the term firstborn is often used for someone who wasn't born first, but had the privileges of the firstborn. It's often used in that way to show rank and prominence. We see this in, in Psalm 80, 89 verse 27. God himself is speaking about King David, and this is what God says about King David. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that David was not the firstborn. In fact, he was the youngest of all his brothers, and he certainly wasn't the first king. Saul was the first king. But God says, I will make him the firstborn. What does he mean? Well, if you just keep reading that verse, Psalm 89, verse 27, he explains it. He says, the highest of the kings of the earth. God's using it to refer to rank and prominence. David will be the first of the kings of all the earth. That's what he means by the firstborn. And it's in that sense that Paul is using the word here. He's using it in a sense as, as a title. 
Not to say that Jesus was the first to be created, but as a title, he is prominent over all creation. He will inherit the lot. It is all his. It belongs to him by right. He owns it all. He is the firstborn over all creation. And that's why Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Because it's his. It belongs to him by right. Now in Colossians 2.8, we read that the, 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 the church there was being uh, lured into uh, some false philosophy or vain philosophy. They were, they, they were being lured to, to trust in the elemental forces. Probably things like fire and wind pagan things. And, and here Paul is saying, don't, don't trust in the creation. Trust in Christ. It belongs to him. He's the firstborn over all creation. And, and he's saying, this is where our confidence should lie. In the one who owns it all. In, in Jesus Christ. And, and this is our Lord this evening. If Jesus Christ is your saviour, then you know the one who owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and, and that's really an understatement. He owns the lot. It's his. And the Bible also says that we will be co-heirs with Christ. Now that's a mind-boggling statement, but it's true. And so here we see the first two truths. The first born over all creation, the image of God. But Paul goes on and he explains why Jesus is the first born over all creation. And we see this in verse 16. Here we have the next truth about Jesus. And we see that Christ is the creator. Look with me at verse 16. He says, for in him... That's in Jesus. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, here, here Paul is reminding them that Jesus is the creator of, of everything. He has made absolutely everything. And he goes on to emphasize it. He doesn't leave any room for, 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 for there to be anything that Jesus did not make. Everything is included in this statement which Paul has just said. He said he created everything in heaven and on earth. Now that word in heaven can mean the heavenly realm or it can mean in heaven as space, the universe. The, the, the word is the same in Greek and it can mean either. It's true either way. Yes, he made the universe, the planets, the stars, and he made everything that's in the heavenly realms as well. And we see that in a moment. He made everything in heaven. He made everything on earth, all the trees. All the birds, absolutely everything was made by Jesus. He goes on and he says, visible and invisible. Jesus Christ created everything material and everything spiritual. He made the body, he made the soul. He goes on, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Now here, here Paul is listing the entire angelic realm, if you like. And he's saying Jesus Christ created all of them. Even Satan himself was made by Jesus Christ. And one day he will bow the knee. He's already a defeated foe, isn't he? But everything was created by Jesus. Absolutely everything. The entire angelic realm. And Paul emphasizes this because we read in Colossians 2.18 that they were being, they, had, they were false teachers who had come into the church who were teaching angel worship. And here Paul is saying, don't worship the angels, worship the one who made them, Jesus Christ. Give him your devotion. Give him your love. He alone is to be worshipped. Why look to created things for salvation when you can look to the creator himself, the one who made it all, the one who was sent by the Father to save us from our sin? This is what Paul is, is saying. And at the end of verse 16, he, 
he, he, he, he rounds it all up with a final statement. And then he tells us the reason for creation, the purpose for it, the end of it. It says this at the end of verse 16. It says, all things were created through him and for him. Paul rounds it all up. He says everything was made through him. And then he says, and for him. And what that means is that everything exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything exists to bring glory and honor to him. It's for him that they were made, for his honor, for his praise, for his pleasure, for his glory, so that he can display what he is like. That's, that's why everything was made. And knowing that fact, the, 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 the question faces each one of us this evening, do you live for his glory? That's the very reason that you were created. Not for anything else, but to, to bring glory and honor to Jesus. He is the end of all things. And if you're living for anything less than that, then you're not living for, the, for the, the ultimate purpose of life, which is to bring glory to Jesus. This is what Paul is, is, is saying here. All things were made for him. And as Paul reminds the Colossian church that Jesus is the creator of everything, he, he finishes this section with, with two, two facts that naturally follow. And we see this in verse 17. He says that Jesus, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now here, firstly, we see that, that Christ is eternal. Jesus has always existed. There has never been a time when Jesus did not exist. He had no beginning. This is why Jesus could say to the Jews in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am, he says. Before Abraham was, I am, I've always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus did not exist. Yes, he became a human being. He, if you like, stepped into space and time. He, he entered our world, but prior to that, he'd always existed, and he always will exist. And secondly, in verse 17, we're reminded that Jesus didn't just create everything, but he's also the one who's keeping it all together. He is the one who sustains everything. He is the one who holds it all together. It's in him that everything consists and has its being. The reason we're sitting here this evening and all the molecules and atoms are staying together is because Jesus is keeping it together. Because he's the one who holds everything together. He is Lord of creation. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He created everything for his glory. And he holds everything together. This is who Jesus Christ is. He created you. He's keeping you alive this moment. He's sustaining you this very moment. I wonder, do you, do you give him the honor and the glory he deserves? Do you love Jesus? Can you say Jesus, the name high over all? Can you say that, that, that there's no name which is sweeter? Can you say that he's the fairest of 10,000? Can you say that he is everything to you? If not, you've got a faulty view of Jesus. Your view of yourself is too big and your view of Jesus is too small. Is your confidence in Jesus Christ this evening? Look at him. Look at who he is. The creator of all things. What a, what a wonderful savior we have. Is your confidence in him? These Colossians were being lured, weren't they, to trust in other things. To trust in philosophy or circumcision or the elemental forces. But here Jesus, uh, Jesus is held up before us, if you like, by Paul. And he's saying, trust in him. Put your confidence in him. He's thoroughly trustworthy. 
I wonder, maybe you're here this evening and, and you know that Jesus is not your Savior. Maybe you're thinking, would, would such an awesome Savior really save me? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even you. Jesus is Lord of creation, the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of everything. Next, in the second part of the hymn, we have more wonderful truths about Jesus. Verses 18 to 20, we, we learn that Jesus is Lord of salvation, not just of creation, but of salvation. And here we have more truths about Christ. The first one is in verse 18. Here we see that Jesus is the head of the church. Look with me at verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now here Paul is reminding the believers at Colossae that the same one who made everything and sustains everything is the one who is the head of the church. And by head, uh, Paul means that, that he is the one who is in charge of the church. He is the one who gives life to the church. And by church, Paul is, is not speaking about the building. Paul isn't saying that he is the one who's giving us the electricity to keep the lights on. Although you could reason that, that he is doing that in some way. But he's, he's speaking about the people, those who have been born again by God's Spirit. And he's, that's through the churches. And we, we learn here that Jesus is the head of the church. That means that, that he, he's in control of it, just as the head controls the body. So Jesus is in charge and control of the church. He is Lord over the church. And just as the head uh, provides life to the body, if you like, as soon as the, the head is cut off, the body dies. And it's the same with the church and Christ. Christ is the source of life for the church. He is the one that sustains it, that keeps it going. And here we have, a, we have a, pic, a wonderful picture of this union between Christ and the church in John 15, don't we? Where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And Jesus is saying that, that, that just as a branch may, uh, must remain on the, on the vine in order to get the nutrients and, and bear fruit. So he says, you must remain in me, abide in me, stay close to me, keep your faith in me. Obey me, and, and then you will bear fruit. We must remain in union with Jesus in order to bear fruit in our lives. Why? Because he is the head of the church. It's his church. It belongs to him. He's the one that keeps it alive. Now, knowing this truth, it becomes obvious, doesn't it, that the greatest need of every church is to keep Jesus at the center of all that takes place. Jesus Christ must be preached. He, he must have his rightful place in every aspect of of church life. He must be loved. He must be obeyed. He must be proclaimed to, outside of the, to those outside the church. He must be put on display in our lives. He is the head of the church. It's his church. Knowing that means that we must also uh, love his church. We shouldn't cause schism in his church or hurt his church. It's his church. He's the head of it. The head of the church. Fifth, the next truth we have is that he's the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18 continues. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Here in verse 18, Paul reminds the Colossians about the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he rose again from the dead. And he, he calls him the beginning. Now, when Paul says that Jesus is the beginning, what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying that, that Jesus is the one who, who started, if you like, the new creation. And he did that by rising again. He's the one who, who brought in, if you like, the, the kingdom of God. He, he inaugurated or, or, or got the, the new creation going. He started it. 
And, and he did that by rising again. It says he's the beginning, and then he explains it. He says the firstborn from the dead. He started the new creation, and he did this by his resurrection from the dead. And when it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, it's saying that he was the first to rise. And because he rose, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits, if you like, as it says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Because he rose, the, the believers at Colossae could have confidence that they too will rise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he rose from the dead, he's alive, guaranteed that they too would one day rise. That death was not the end. And that one day they too would have glorified bodies like, like he did. And what it's meant for the Colossian believers, it means for us too. If Jesus Christ is your saviour, if your faith is in him alone, then you too have the same confidence that they had. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, we too will be resurrected to new life. And you can be certain of it because he is risen. When we see him, we shall be like him. We will see him as he is. Now the Colossians were to trust in Christ alone to raise them from the dead. Paul is reminding them that, that it's in Jesus that they have this hope and this certainty in no one else and in nowhere else. And we must do the same. Place your confidence in Jesus. Why will you rise again? The only answer the Christian can give is because Jesus has risen. And that's where my faith lies. He is where my confidence is. He has defeated death and therefore I too will not be held by it. I do not, do not need to fear it because he has defeated it. He is victorious. And then at the end of verse 18, he states the reason why this happened. Why was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? He says so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead, the first to be resurrected so that he would have first place in everything, so that he would have the supremacy. Jesus Christ is supreme. And Paul continues, he hasn't exhausted the attributes of Christ yet. And he goes on, the Lord Jesus Christ is like a diamond. And the more you hold it up in the light and turn it, the more beautiful he is. He's inexhaustible. And Paul goes on. Look with me at verse 19. Here we see the sixth truth about Christ. And that is that he is the fullness of God. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now here Paul gives a powerful and clear declaration that Jesus Christ is God. Here we see a clear statement of, of the deity of Christ. The fullness of God was in Jesus. Now the fullness means all of God. All of God was in Jesus. There's a hymn by Charles Wesley, and I can't quote it word for word because I can't remember it properly. But he basically speaks about the, the infinite God being contracted to a span. And it's, it's, it's a mystery. We cannot really grasp it. It's beyond us, but nevertheless, nevertheless, it's a truth. It's the truth. The fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. God became a man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting for us to know that, that Jesus still has a body. It, it, it's amazing to think, but when the second person of the Godhead God the Son took on him a human, human nature. He still has that now. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. They did not need to trust in anyone else or anything else outside of Jesus. This is their Savior. Now what this amazing truth means is that the man who hung naked upon a cross, and he was naked, the man who was humiliated on the cross, naked, who died to pay for our sins, had the fullness of God dwelling in him. He was God. 
He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why would God die such a humiliating death? The reason is to pay for your and my sins. That's why. Because he loved you so much. He was willing to experience such shame from his own creation in order to save you from your sins, in order to make you his own. What a wonderful truth. Jesus Christ is the divine Savior, the God-man who died to save sinners. And this is an important truth to grasp. And John Newton, we go back to that hymn which I read at the start, and he knew the importance of this. If the Colossians didn't get this right, then their hope was in vain. And this is what, this is what John Newton says. He says, Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God. If he's not God, we might as well go home and, and turn the lights off. But because he is God, we know that he can save us to the uttermost. Because he is God, and therefore he saves. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't have saved us from our sins. But because he is, we know that he is enough. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone as your only hope of salvation. Your only hope of being forgiven for the wrong you've done in your life. Put your confidence in Jesus. I wonder this evening, are, are you trusting in him? Is Jesus Christ your, your only hope of going to heaven? If I stopped you at the door on the way out, which I won't, so don't worry. But if I did and said, why will you go to heaven? What would you say? Well, if you said this evening, well, because I'm a good person, your trust is not in Jesus Christ. If you said, well, I've come to church, haven't I? Then your trust is not in Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ alone. So we have the final truth now. Paul has, has told us so much, and then he goes on. And this is the final truth. And of course, it's not the final truth. It's not, it's not the, the exhaustive truth. There's so much more. But this is the final truth in our section. Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all things. And if you want to make it simpler, you could say he's the peacemaker. And we're going to see that in a moment. Verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. He says, and through him, speaking about God, God wanted his fullness to dwell in him. And then he says, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So God reconciled everything to himself through Jesus. He says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, in, in this final verse of this section, we see what Jesus came to do. What was it that he came to do? And here we see that God worked through Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. Now, that word reconcile means to take away the hostility. If you fall out with your neighbor, which as a Christian you would never do, would you? But just, just imagine if you did, because your neighbor was, I don't know, put the fence up where you didn't want it up or something like that, and you were, li and you were enemies, and then somebody brought you together, sat you down, and you talked it through, and you became friends again, well, then you would be reconciled. The hostility was taken away. And what we see here is that this is what Jesus Christ has done between us and God. Jesus has taken enemies, and he's made them friends again. The Bible says that our sin separates us from God, that God hates sin, and that, and that our sin is offensive to him. It says in Romans 5, 8, that we are the enemies of God. But here we see that Jesus Christ came to make peace 
that the hostility between us and God because of our sin can be removed through Jesus Christ so that the sinful creation can be reconciled to the holy creator. This is what it's saying. This is what God did in Jesus. And here Paul reminds the Colossian church that one day all of creation will be restored to perfection. All of creation, the animals, the trees, everything was affected by the fall. You can read that in Genesis 3. It says thorns and briars will come up and in the sweat of your brow you will work. And all of creation was affected by the fall. But here we see that all of creation one day will be reconciled to God, made perfect again. Now, of course, this is not teaching universal salvation. This is not universalism. It is still true that without Jesus Christ, there is no reconciliation. There is a hell. This is not saying that everyone will be saved eventually. What it's saying is that all of creation will be reconciled to God. God in his grace has made a way to be reconciled back to him. How did he do this? It says that he did this through his blood shed on the cross. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. We sung the song, didn't we? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Maybe you sung that and thought, that's a weird thing to say. What's he talking about? But he's speaking about the blood of Christ. Emmanuel is the name of Jesus. And the reason why it's saying that there's, there's life in, in, in the blood of Jesus is because it's his blood that takes away our sins. The Bible says that sin must be punished and that, and, 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 and that the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. That the soul that sins, it must die. All throughout the Bible, we see there must be punishment for sin. And the only way to get rid of sin is with the shedding of blood. And here we learn that Jesus Christ himself shed his own precious blood in order to atone, in order to cleanse our sins, in order to take them away, in order to pay for them, in order to pay the penalty for them, in order to pay the the price for them. However you want to describe it, Jesus took the punishment which we deserve. We heard from Andy this morning that he took the bullet for us. He, he, He paid the penalty which we should pay, and he did this by shedding his own blood on the cross. He died the death that we should die. So that instead of having eternal death, we might have life. And Paul here is reminding the Colossian church that salvation is found only in Jesus. It is only in him, in his blood, that there is reconciliation, that there is peace with God. Only in Jesus Christ. And the church at Colossae was being threatened by a heresy that was saying that Jesus wasn't enough. But here he's saying all you need is Jesus. He has made reconciliation through the blood of his cross. You need him. And the question I put before you this evening is, do you have him? Has his blood paid for your sin? And you might say, well, I don't know. The way that you can know is because you turn away from doing wrong. You repent and put your faith in Jesus. You believe in him. You trust in him. And the question is, are you relying on him this evening? Are you trusting in his blood, as it were, to take away your sin, to make you right with God, to reconcile you to God? Are you trusting in his death? His resurrection. If you're relying on your own goodness this evening, if you're saying, yes, Jesus, but this as well, well, you don't have Jesus. But if you're saying, Jesus alone is my only hope, well, then you've got Christ. Which one describes you this evening?
Paul was telling the Colossians about Jesus Christ here because he wanted him, he wanted them to have full confidence in him. And indeed we can. Jesus Christ, as we finish, Jesus is Lord of creation and he's Lord of salvation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of everything. He is before all things, eternal, and in him everything holds together. He is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the supreme one, the fullness of God, the reconciler of all things. You could say in six words, he is the all-sufficient Savior. That's who Jesus Christ is. And if you're a believer this evening, then be encouraged. This is who your Savior is. The one who pleads for you before the Father in heaven is described before us here. What confidence we can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. If our faith is in him, we can know it is well with my soul because of who he is. He is enough. And our confidence should be in him alone. If you're here this evening and you're not a believer, then I want you to know that your greatest need is Jesus Christ. You need him. He alone can forgive the wrong you've done in your life. You need God's forgiveness and it's only found in Jesus. You need to turn from doing wrong. Repent and believe in him. Put your whole trust in Jesus Christ. And do it this evening. Believe in him and be saved. He is Lord of creation and Lord of salvation. So awesome, so amazing. And yet, he loves you. He thinks about you. And he will, he will save you this evening if you turn to him. Just going to pray. I'm going to hand over to Tiago. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your mercy and your grace. We, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. Here we have such a wonderful description of our Savior. Father, we pray that you will increase our love for him. Father, those of us who know Jesus Christ this evening, give us a greater understanding and a greater love and a greater obedience and a greater zeal and a greater passion for our Savior. Father, work in us, we pray. Forgive us for our coolness, for our lack of love, and fill us, Father, with a passion for our wonderful Savior. And Father, for any among us this evening who do not yet know Jesus, we pray that you will open their hearts and grant them repentance and faith. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.